the Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. Although this series is devoted to the why of lunar exploration, we cannot ignore the how. In episode 19, we turn our attention to the technology, the how, if you will, that supports and enables the science, the why. In planning both the manned and unmanned lunar missions, it is often necessary to test equipment and techniques on real lunar regolith. The problem is, you can't just waltz up to the Johnson Space Centre and say, hey guys, give me a dozen kilograms of lunar dirt so I can experiment with it. Uh, Nor does your local garden supplier stock lunar regolith. So what to do? Well, fortunately, riding to the rescue are a few companies that grind up earth rocks in such a way that they simulate lunar regoliths. One of the makers of lunar regolith simulant is John Bassey of Washington State University. Remember that 1980 joke that said, don't bother going to Washington State because Washington State is coming to you. In May of 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted, spreading a cloud of volcanic ash across the United States. Well, John Bassey has been scooping up that ash to make simulant. Hello, and thank you for coming to my presentation today. My name is John Bussey, and I'm excited to talk about our work on using Mount St. Helens ash as a lunar regular simulant. Uh, this characterization work has been carried out in the Nuclear Optical Magnetic and Electronic Materials Laboratory here at Washington State University. So in trips to the moon, such as the upcoming Artemis missions, one key issue, one thing that needs to be tested is compatibility with lunar regolith. Lunar regolith is destructive, hazardous, and toxic to human health and equipment used. And so trying to figure out ways to mitigate this dust hazard, which is on spacesuits and in the airlock and on um, solar panels, as well as compatibility with things such as rovers and landers 
is absolutely critical. Unfortunately, current supplies of simulants are limited, especially commercially, and require intensive, onerous processes to make them and sources as far away as Greenland. Fortunately, Mount St. Helens ash occurs naturally and without modification, and it has been stored in Pullman, Washington, uh, where it has not been weathered or exposed to the elements at all. We, we hypothesize the volcanic ash from Mount St. Helens would be similar to lunar regolith since both are formed in high and extreme circumstances, such as temperature pressure and erosion, uh, such as volcanic explosions and meteoroid impacts. Um, so, we, so we looked at a variety of important factors, such as the ones de deemed most important, which are really mineralogy, particle size distribution, and morphology, with agglutinate characteristics also relevant. Um, we looked at these on a variety of characterization tools, scan, including scan electron microscopy, extranaocopy, and tomography, among others. And overall, we found that um, this, this Mount St. Helens ash is, is fairly similar to the felspathic highlands um, dust and regolith, and that it could create a, a, a fairly promising simulant. So when thinking about the mineralogy, um, both have significant amount of glassy phases, where the Mount St. Helens is about 80% of those glass, brechas, and agglutinated particles, while only 20 to 50% for a lunar regolith. That said, they both contain a significant portion of these particles. Um, they also have significant amount of crystalline phases, which are mostly plagioclast feldspar, it's a bit smaller for the Mount St. Helens ash, but again, some more of the calcium and sodium over potassium. Both And both are similar to anorthosite, with lunar regolith being in the highlands region being entirely anorthosite. Both also have agglutinated particles that are mostly vitric. And this was determined both in the literature, and we worked on this with X-ray diffraction, energy dispersive X-ray spectroscopy. Uh, additionally, the morphology is a really critical character, especially for mechanical testing, because you need to know how these particles interact with bearings and joints. And so what we were able to find with scan microscopy is that there are high amounts of both angular particles, as you can see up top with these little shards, particles that have fused surface. So in the second from the top, you have these particles with lots of small pieces that are fused to the surface by the high extreme heat and pressure, um, blocky mineral fragments, and pieces of glass that are very glassy with fused pieces on top. Um, and these were exhibited in both lunar regolith and Mount St. Helens ash. We have things very similar to agglutinates, where you have these kind of crystalline felt, uh, lithic fragments fused together by glass with big pores on the left, and a glassy piece with fused, um, fused lithic particles on the outside. And on the inside, you have these, this glassy matrix with crystals that have come out of it. <sighs> Additionally, the particle size distribution is similar. Controls right between the average for lunar regolith and the average for lunar dust simulants. And this is really important because it has both some of those really small particles that can get into cloth and into bearings, can be really destructive, as well as some of the larger one that makes out more bulk mechanical properties. So generally, we found that Mount St. Helens is a low to medium fidelity simulant that is applicable for testing in the lunar highlands. Um, and this is especially relevant because that's going to be the Artemis landing site. There's comparable mineralogy, these on the left, even though there's a bit more glass in the regolith, in the, uh, I'm sorry, in the ash than in the regolith. Additionally, there are agglutinated particles, which are really rare and difficult to find on Earth. They, there are whole companies that are designed just to, to make these particles, and it's, it's, it's really onerous to make. That's particularly notable and special that we can find this in the Mount St. Helens ash. 
Furthermore, the particle size distributions are the same, or not the same, are similar, um, falling kind of between dust and lunar regolith. Um, and, there, and so generally, it's pretty well aligned for mechanical testing, Chem, not so much for chemical testing, but where you're testing the compatibility and whether the survivability of um, and the durability of proposed technology, this, this, this system works really well, as well as for dust mitigation methods. And further work is needed to kind of figure out some of maybe the best way to apply the Mount St. Helens test, but generally we found that it is a promising lotomy and fairly stimulant. When astronauts are on the moon, or on their way to or fro, they will need to be shielded from solar and cosmic radiation. One suggestion is to use cerametals to do this. A cerametal is a ceramic metal nanoparticle composite. In August of 2021, Abdul Massoud of the School of Applied and Natural Sciences at Louisiana Tech University in Rushton set out his proposal. Hello everyone. It's my pleasure to present this poster titled Radiation Shielding Using Ceramettals, uh, that is Ceramic Metal Nanoparticle Composites. Uh, my name is Abdul Razak Massoud and um, I'm a PhD student at Louisiana Tech University. Um, now, uh, human sp uh, space exploration has been an essential part of human society, uh, basically since we first began to experience life in space. And as we move deeper into the century, um, NASA plans bold missions that face difficult challenges, and uh, these challenges must be addressed in advance to kind of provide continuous support to further um, uh, space exploration. Among these challenges, um, a significant issue is the fast um, deconditioning that astronauts experience during flight um, as a result of microgravity effects, um, as well as um, long exposure to radiation, um, either in deep space or in low Earth um, orbit. Um, the, later, the latter is even more um, critical owing to the fact that um, continuous exposure to charged particles that produce secondary radiation such as neutrons and gamma rays kind of significantly increase the odds of developing cancer um, as well as causing lasting um, health effects. Um, now there are a number of um, materials with high strength, toughness, and increased temperature resistance um, that are already being widely used, uh, especially in aerospace, defense, and other industrial fields. Um, for example, we have um, polypropylene, which has been widely studied, and its fibers have been shown in various research works to have increased impermeability. And this increased uh, impermeability is actually um, a very good quality that can be harnessed for radiation shielding purposes. Um, gadolinium oxide and bismuth oxide um, are additives which have also been shown to kind of attenuate X-rays and gamma rays in several research studies. Um, additionally, um, there are halocytes, which are clay nanotubes composed of aluminum and silicate. And these halocytes have pores, which are kind of very large, or they're large enough for encapsulating small molecules. And each halocyte nanotube has um, alternating layers of aluminum and silicate. And this makes them very suitable adsorbents for cations and anions to be attached to the surface of these um, uh, nanotubes. Um, with this being said, um, this, said, this study 
um, is aimed at developing effective radiation shielding for space applications via um, 3D printing and blow spinning of nanocomposite materials. Um, we see that both one millimeter and three millimeter native PLA 3D printed squares which were doped with 5% and 10% iron oxide as a starting material, significantly reduced gamma rays in counts per, per minute. Um, this actually is very promising uh, and can be incorporated uh, in developing effective devices and systems and whatnot for protecting astronauts um, from radiations in this deep space um, as well as low Earth orbits. Once on the moon, astronauts and equipment will need energy. There is a diversity of energy generation and storage methods available for use on the lunar surface. I am Nikolai Zakovich and I will talk about multiple opportunities for energy generation on the moon. The sun is the primary source of energy in solar system. Sunlight produces temperature changes and temperature differences on lunar surface. Temperature changes result in thermal expansion. Due to external photoeffect, the sunlight cre creates an electrostatic charge of the surface during the day and produces charged dust. For completeness, I should mention such weak energy sources at outgassing at negligibly low pressure in vacuum and solar wind, whose energy density is many orders of magnitude weaker than that of sunlight. Sunlight on the lunar surface is intermittent. It is present during the day and absent during night. One can cover a fraction of lunar surface with, with light absorbing material, such as photovoltaics, which, which in turn produces electricity. And under absorbing material, uh, the surface will become warmer. A different fraction of the surface can be covered by reflective material such as mirrors which can reflect light to photovoltaics. On the mirror the surface will become cooler. This temperature difference will remain during night. Uh, the moon does not have an atmosphere hence there is no convective cooling. Temperature difference between warm and cool places can provide energy on demand. One can use uh, thermocouples uh, to harvest that energy as electricity. Uh, different uh, energy generators have different efficiency and different durability. For example, a typical solar panel lasts on, on the order of 10 years, same as the best rechargeable batteries. In contrast, devices relying on external photo effect in vacuum, thermocouples and capacitors can last an order of magnitude longer. Uh, some of the energy generators are made of materials which uh, contain chemical elements abundant in regolith. As an example, I will consider thermomagnetoelectric generator, which consists of a magnetocaloric material that changes um, magnetic flux at the, at the magnetic phase transition during temperature change, and a coal. When the flux through the coal is changing, the coal generates voltage. Uh, some of the magnetocaloric materials contain such elements as iron, 
aluminum, silicon, titanium, which are abundant in lunar regolith. Thus, uh, in order to build uh, energy infrastructure on, on the moon, one can use in situ extracted materials. Uh, this will make this, this structure cheaper. And because uh, delivery of uh, materials and supplies to the moon is costly, it does make sense to build a durable infrastructure. It is possible to build generators which last over the order of 100 years. Most people will be familiar with the robotic arms of the Curiosity and Perseverance Mars rovers. Also, those on submersibles here in our oceans. The need for such arms is foreseen for the moon. One suggestion is cold arm, a robotic arm that could survive the frigid conditions at the lunar south pole or during the long lunar nights. Cryogenic, by the way, refers to temperatures so cold that air turns to a liquid. I am Ryan McCormick from JPL, and I'm the project manager for Cold Arm, which is Cold Operable Lunar Deployable Arm. So just to give a quick overview, um, the project is funded under LSII, and it's managed through STMV's Game Changing Development Program. It was originally funded as a ground demonstration with potential path to eclipse launch, and then the scope was increased to um, include lander integration and surface operations for a lunar tech demo, and so it'll be a tailored 7120.8. We're pre-manifested on a 2024 flight PRISM-1B um, to Schrodinger Basin, and the primary focus of this is to demonstrate operation of a cryogenic-capable robotic manipulator on the lunar surface. So a quick overview of the ARM. Our industrial partner on this is Motive Space Systems. Um, the ARM will look very similar to the Phoenix and InSight ARM. So it'll be four degrees of freedom, roughly two meters in length. Um, the initial reference experiment we're doing right now uses a 3D printed scoop to collect geotechnical properties. And we'll have roughly 40 newtons of tip force in the primary workspace, which is the same requirement as needed for Phoenix. The main innovation is that we can do cold operation without heaters below 100 Kelvin. This is done through the bulk metallic glass actuators and harmonic flux lines in addition to cold motor controllers. On the surface, we also have a robotic avionics and sensor kit. Um, this, these will be in a warm electronics box here, and this largely leverages the Mars helicopter avionics, which is successfully flying on Mars, including the cameras. And additionally, there will be a six-axis six force torque sensor at the wrist. Um, so just overall, again, the, the main goal is to demonstrate that the cold arm can operate in a cryogenic lunar environment with capabilities supporting future planetary and lunar exploration. So our first objective is to demonstrate the arm on the lunar surface. The second objective is to demonstrate these key technologies in the relevant environments without active heaters. Objective three is to perform a NASA-defined experiment with a robotic arm for the lunar exploration. So while the main focus is to show demonstration of the arm and demonstrate these cold technologies. We want to do some opportunistic experiments while we're there, and then also demonstrate risk reduction for future planetary and lunar exploration. We'll flight qualify the overall system, and then we'll do the lunar demonstration, which will bring together the combinations of gravity, dust, environment, radiation, and temperature that are hard to simulate on the Earth. So JPL is providing the end effector, the, um, the robotic avionics and sensor kit, 
and the bulk attack glass gear motors and harmonics. And then Motive is providing the dates of your motive controllers and they'll do a robotic arm design, including arm structure, launch locks, actuators, and base plate. So they'll integrate all of this and deliver back to JPL for final testing before we go and do render integration. We're currently aiming to complete everything and ready to bolt on by the end of FY22. Um, and this will give us time for an FY24 flight. These future dates may shift some, but right now we're planning to be ready to bolt on by the end of next fiscal year. Here's a quick reference experiment for something we, we could do. The final experiment is still being decided on. But um, this would take, after we land, we would take images of the surface. We would then um, deploy the arm and do robotic arm checkouts. And then the scoop is, um, it has different bearing plates on them, so two different sizes. And so this would push one bearing plate into the surface. It would then rotate around and then push the second bearing plate into the surface. We can measure displacement force with the force torque sensor. We also have the capability of doing a surface shear test with another set of features on the scoop. And then we can demonstrate, um, we can demonstrate trenching and bring the sample back to the cameras and scoop them out to get uh, information like angle of repose. After this is completed, we'll position the elbow. So it will be as shadowed as possible. And then we'll wait for after dusk so we can demonstrate a robotic motion as cold as we can possibly get resources permitting from the lander. Aside from just this first mission, the idea is we can feed into future missions. So for example, the geotechnical property experiment can give information for landers, rovers, ISRU, or humans. Um, this potentially could just be a standard engineering asset for future CLIPS missions. We're um, part of the Intrepid Rover study. Um, we we're talking with the lunar train vehicle folks. And then the individual technologies can be used outside of robotic arms. So uh, maybe use them in rovers, gimbals for exploring lunar night and PSRs and show various levels of autonomy. Looking for Mars, we could do things like long range rovers or areas like ocean world, like Europa Lander or Enceladus Um We are working on a tool changer concept. So the idea is we could have multiple payloads that we could swap out on the surface. And so we would provide uh, power and comms and mechanical interfaces to each of these. Three Apollo missions carried dune buggy-like lunar roving vehicles that allowed the two astronauts to drive a dozen or so kilometers across the moon. The Artemis astronauts will have available to them much more capable moon cars, the lunar terrain vehicles. This project update from May of 2022. Hello folks, I'm the project manager for the Lunar Terrain Vehicle. So over the last probably six to nine months, we've had a lot of activity going on in the project. Probably the one of the most recent things is the LTV project is now part of the EVA and Human Surface Mobility Program. Over the last nine months, we went through and uh, completed what we have called the Survive the Night Study. And this is where we went through and really did a full investigation of the vehicle from a performance and requirements standpoint and looked at various design options that could be implemented into the future LTV. What this did was it really increased our understanding of the environment and, and how those environmental impact 
environmental conditions will impact the, the vehicle design. We looked at things like the long-term lighting conditions, what would be a minimum dark survival duration that we would want the vehicle to have, and really how would how does the dynamic lighting conditions at the South Pole impact traverse planning as you try to venture out away from your landing site or some of these safer zones? And so we went through and did a lot of work in that area. In support of this, we also released a RFI to industry where we were really asking a couple of specific questions to help us inform the, the project. We were curious about how industry has thought about surviving these long durations of dark at the South Pole, how they would approach a vehicle that could survive for 10 years in that environment. Uh, we were also curious, you know, if they had preferences on how the, the vehicle would be delivered to the South Pole. Would that be something that, uh, that they would want the government to provide or is something they would like to have as part of the project scope? We got some really good feedback from industry. We got uh, 21 specific respondents that provided an impact that was either highly detailed. And then what we're uh, continuing to do is perform in-house risk reduction activities. We're looking at things like human factors and how suited astronauts could interact with vehicle of different possible configurations. The technology needed to support science is not limited to surface operations. A lot of science is planned to be done from lunar orbit. The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has been circling the moon since 2009. As Ben Greenhagen of the Applied Physics Laboratory explained in May of 2022, there is a need for new lunar orbital capabilities. All right, yes, thanks, uh, Sam. So, yeah, I'm going to talk about the continuous lunar orbital capabilities. Specific action team, CLOCKSAT, uh, and this is a league-requested uh, SAT on behalf of the lunar community. Right, so one of the early questions you know, that we often hear is you know, what happens after LRO's mission ends? And this is a, a really easy question to get stuck on because LRO has been in orbit for so long and has returned uh, so much incredible information about the lunar surface. But it's important to keep in mind a few things. First, NASA will continue to have a presence in lunar orbit uh, for the foreseeable future. It just uh, extended uh, LRO for its fifth extended science mission and uh, also Artemis, all capital Artemis, is uh, in lunar orbit as we speak. In the very near future, we expect additional orbital assets to go to the moon, including Capstone and Artemis 1 this summer, followed by Lunar Flashlight and Lunar Trailblazer a little bit after that. And on the, the human supporting side, there's uh, Gateway and Orion uh, will be joining eventually as well. It's also important to keep in mind that there are, are science questions that remain to be answered that can best be achieved lunar orbit. And a really great example of this is the fact that there were multiple discovery proposals put in uh, in the last round that used lunar orbiters. So they're accomplishing discovery level science. Orbital capabilities are integral to supporting surface operations and any surface operations will be significantly limited if we don't have those capabilities. And finally, if you start thinking a little bit out of the box, intentionally long duration orbital capabilities, LRO is unintentionally long duration, but if you have an intentional long duration orbital capability, um, that can actually open up new types of science, including uh, monitoring the lunar uh, surface and, and uh, environment. So the better question, and the question we're trying to address with this set, is what is uh, the integrated strategy for lunar orbital capabilities? So um, this has been on the, the community's mind for quite a while. 
there have been findings at the last two big meetings, both the 2020 meeting and the 2021 meeting that supported uh, developing a long-term strategy uh, for identifying and addressing what the needs are for lunar uh, remote sensing capabilities. And this is also supported by findings uh, in recent uh, league organized stats on behalf of NASA. So the area we're at right now is we're finding out where we need a little bit additional information. So we will be reaching out to specific members of the community to come and talk to the SAT and we'll be developing the integrated strategy and recommendations.